Hey, and welcome to A Cup with Joe. With each episode, I'm bringing you rich conversations and refreshing drinks. So sit down, grab your drink, and join me. Anyone who went to school in the U.S. remembers doing the Pledge of Allegiance every day in class. But at the end of the Pledge of Allegiance, there's this phrase that we always said, with liberty and justice for all. So on the heels of this kind of precarious 4th of July weekend that we're in, where we're kind of wrought by arguments of social distancing and also social justice, I found myself asking, what is liberty and justice for all? Like, what does that actually mean? In the U.S., we are in serious need of some criminal justice reform as we've gone from slavery to mass incarceration, and it doesn't seem like it's slowing down. So I think the first step to correcting or reforming our criminal justice system is awareness and education. So in this episode, I'm so glad to be chatting with Ashley Adams, who's an attorney with the Equal Justice Initiative. She spent the last several years working in criminal justice and educating citizens on the work that EJI does. What I really loved about this conversation is that Ashley is admittedly shy. However, she doesn't use that shyness to prevent her from doing this work in criminal justice. And she also let me know that she was a cheerleader in high school, which I found really interesting because I also was really into cheer as a kid. And so we kind of bonded over that. I was inspired by the conversation and I hope that you are as well. So listen in and see what Ashley had to share with me. Hi, Ashley. Welcome to the show. Hey, glad to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you. I was really grateful when Chris introduced us and it seemed like we had so much in common, but I also wanted to learn more about your heart and the work that you do with the Equal Justice Initiative. Awesome. Um, I love talking about work and what I do. And I know sometimes people don't want to hear the war stories, <laughs> uh, but I, I do like talking about work. It's, it's, I mean, it, you know, it's a big part of my life. So, <laughs> and it's an important part. So can you tell us a little bit like what is the Equal Justice Initiative? The Equal Justice Initiative is a private nonprofit law firm in Montgomery, Alabama, and we um, work to um, abolish mass incarceration, uh, racial um, inequality, and to educate the community about our nation's history of racial injustice. Um, We also do work with with excessive punishment and excessive sentencing. Um, And we work with um, people who were sentenced to die in prison as children. Um, We also um, have a memorial um, dedicated to the victims of lynching between um, 1877 and 1950. Um, We've expanded um, that dedication to other parts of our sites. We have a... um, Legacy Center, Peace and Justice Center, where we have a memorial for people who were um, lynched the after 1950, and then we have a um, a new center that opened up a couple of months ago 
that has a memorial that is um, dedicated to people who were lynched during the Civil War and right after the Civil War, like right before, um, like during that Reconstruction period, and a little bit, and some in the Civil War. Our racial justice work is meant to inform our legal work and to educate people about the role that um, our nation's history of racial injustice has played in the prison system that we have today in the United States. So um, we work with people on death row, we work with people on trying to get parole, um, work with people on probation, so a lot of um, trying to tackle the um, problems that arise in our criminal justice system due to racism and poverty. Um, it is very heavy. Uh, <laughs> and um, it's, it's really, it's heavy because, you know, like the end result of, you know, if you are not successful, um, especially with the death penalty case, if you're not successful, your client will be executed by the state. And that's a little different from, you know, the work that I used to do as a public defender where someone could get a really long prison sentence, which can be, you know, especially if it's a life without parole sentence, that can, that's another form of death in prison. Um, but, you know, you can't come back from an execution. So, you know, you have to get it right um, the first time or else your client is going to be killed by the state. So, yeah, it, it, it weighs heavy on you um, at just random times. So, And what prompted you to move from being a public defender into, you know, something that's even more like high stakes or, or even heavier than than what you were doing before? I was, um, I actually came from a private uh, firm right before I came to EJI. I worked at a civil insurance, civil insurance firm, um, insurance defense firm for about 10 months before I came to EJI. And the reason why I went to that firm is because I was burned out from being a public defender. Um, I probably burned out in year two of being a public defender wow. and just tried to fight through it and eventually got to the point where I was like, I can't, I'm not healthy and I'm angry and not in a position to represent my clients in the way that I want to. Um, so I, I had like, you know, just a huge caseload and it was just becoming unbearable. My blood pressure was super high. Um, and I was, just dealing with all sorts of just collateral stuff that happens when your body is really stressed out. Um, so I had a supervisor at the last public defender place that I worked that had moved to a civil insurance defense firm. And she told me about a position that had opened there and helped me get on there. I lasted barely 10 months. Um, it just was not what I saw myself doing, it wasn't inspiring to get up in the morning. Um, it wasn't, you know, it just was not how I wanted to go about my life is defending, you know, a huge insurance company 
and trying to help them, you know, figure out every day how to deny their, their customers um, money when they've been paying, you know, these insane premiums for months and years sometimes. So I wanted to get back into the work of criminal defense, but not at the speed that is usually required of a public defender. And I applied for a staff attorney position with the Equal Justice Initiative and started in February of 2017. And I've been, been there ever since. And the work is a lot slower. We've been incredibly busy lately because there's just been a lot going on in the world. Um, and we've become an organization that people look to for answers, um, especially with the murder of um, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Aubrey. We've just had an increase in phone calls and emails and um, just a lot of contact from people wanting help and answers about what's going on um, and there's a movie just mercy there's a documentary true justice um, there's a book just mercy um, a book by one of our um, former clients mr hinton um, the sun does shine and people are more people are being exposed to those um, type to the media that we've put out and that is also increasing the um, exposure that we get and causing people to contact us, seeing us as a first resort for making sense of everything that's going on. And I've been doing the same. I have been, you know, consuming the articles and the videos. I've been sharing it with non-Black people. You know what I mean? <laughs> I've been saying, hey, here's an afternoon video to watch about, you know, five minutes of, you know, the history of lynching or in our country, you know, do this for homework or whatever. And, and they've been so helpful. Um, of course, for me, it's, 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 it's hurtful to, to know as well, right? It's heavy. Um, I can even feel as you're talking when I'm thinking about the weight of those heinous actions and crimes versus people who, you know, are facing the death penalty and they may not have even committed a crime or maybe they've been over sentenced and thinking about that really weighs so heavily on me as a black woman and you're doing the work and I'm just, you know, I'm a, a bystander or watching, but it still hurts just the same. Yeah. And, you know, I, you know, I, one of the things that I always want to people to know is that just because you're not at the equal justice initiative or not a lawyer or, not in, um, you know, like direct service work or anything like that. It's that's not required of you to be of help or um, to be a part of making change. Um, and just being black, you know, just being a black woman is that's just enough. Oh, that's enough. Yeah. That's enough. Yeah. And, you know. Um, you know, that's, I think that's a form of resistance, just getting up every day and existing is enough. Um, and it's really, you know, I don't believe it is our job to educate people on um, 
as a personal, you know, on a personal level, I don't think it's our job to do that. Although we find ourselves doing it, you know, yep, um, yep. we find ourselves doing, it. I mean, even on in my personal life, I find myself sharing our videos and sharing other, you know, organizations that um, put out articles and things because I'm hoping that someone who follows me or sees my stuff will, it will, you know, spark something in them to be like, oh, okay. Oh, I was wrong. And, you know, um, it's not all made up. Right, right. Like, please, God, just understand that. This data. Thing. Right, right. Huh. Um, so I guess since you t- you're talking about educating ourselves and about you name some of the resources that we can find uh, on EJI's site, ways or outlets would you recommend people? find to educate themselves on, you know, kind of how we got here as a history, you know, through reconstruction, through all of the lynchings and, and just acts of terror to our modern, you know, prison system. Um, there are a lot of books and um, different websites. You don't have to educate us all here, though, because I don't want you to oh. do all that. But. <laughs> no, I mean, I can yeah, give us the links or something, but you don't have to. Yeah, there are, um, I guess I'll start with books like Slavery by Another Name, um, The Warmth of Other Suns, The New Jim Crow, um, Mr. Hinton's book, The Sun Does Shine, Brian's book, Just Mercy. There's also a young adult version of Just Mercy. Um, there are people that I I think Twitter is a really good resource um, to just expand your connection to people who are not like you. Um, I try to in, you know, I kind of, I'd say I kind of creep on Twitter. Um, I've been kind of in a semi anonymous um, position on Twitter for 10 years, (laughs) for a really long time. But I, you know, I try to follow people and interact with people who are not, um, who I just wouldn't normally, you know, interact with. Like I try to, um, um, I know I follow a a woman who is undocumented, you know, to, and I know I've come into contact with people just in everyday life who are undocumented, but to see her thoughts and to see how she goes through life, which I know I'm not getting the full view of how her life is, but she is um, on, you know, on Twitter, she puts her full name and that her, that her status is undocumented. And it's just, you know, really interesting to see how um, she moves about her life. Um, I follow um, Native American women who, um, you know, I mean, that's, they're, things that I I learned something new from them all the time, just by them tweeting about just different things that happened to them and different, you know, them correcting people in different conversations and stuff. Um, There are- I've seen a few of those. Yeah, I mean, and it's really like, you know, it's just really eye-opening. There are also just other scholars like um, Nicole Hannah-Jones who writes for the New York Times is amazing. Um, and she puts out really great work and she's also the um, 
author and coordinator of the 1619 project, which she just won a Pulitzer Prize for. And um, she's an amazing follow. Um, Clint Smith. She goes by Ida Bay Wells. Yes, she goes by Ida Bay Wells. Um, yeah. Clint Smith is a recent, recently graduated from Harvard's PhD program, but a lot of his PhD work was um, with juvenile lifers. So with um, juveniles who'd been sentenced to life in prison, and he has spent a lot of time in prisons, and he has a very excellent grasp on history, and he puts out really great threads on history. Um, so I often, you know, I follow him, and he just puts out really awesome perspectives and, you know, on history and information and stuff. So, um, and that's Twitter. The other social media platforms, I'm, I'm on them, but yeah. yeah, like Facebook is, is, is I'm still on Facebook because family, family. And I try to use it at, to break up. I know that there are people on there who trust the information that I put out and mm -hmm. I just view it as a way to pass good information on to people. Cause I know that Facebook these days is filled with trash and just like, and bots and just really weird stuff that people are passing around. So I post a lot on Facebook, usually articles and things to try to break that up, you know? So like, um, just posting articles and stuff. And, you know, there are a lot of people on there who are like, oh, I never knew this. And it's like, this is why I stay on Facebook. It's mm -hmm. Mark Zuckerberg is the devil. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, <I will. laughs> but you're going to fight the good fight on Facebook. But I will fight sure. the good fight on Facebook. Um, and uh, yeah. Instagram is really good, too. Like, I, I think Instagram is a great follow, too. But um, so if I had to put some like social media out there, I would start with Instagram and Twitter um, as far as like getting resources, like really good information. I would put Facebook at the bottom. Um, <laughs> but um, so there are book, there are podcasts like I think the 1619 Project has a podcast. Um, yep, they do. They do. And it's a great podcast. Um Let's see what else. Um, the Read is another great one if you want to get the perspective of um, Black LGBTQIA folks on just like popular culture and their, um, especially like popular Black culture. Um, it's another um, one to look at. Um, NPR has really great pieces on their like morning shows. Um, I, I subscribe, so I agree. I'll yeah. <laughs> so uh, those are, you know, things that um, I um, absorb and look at to, you know, get my information about stuff. Um, even just like we put out a lot of stuff on history, but I think those air, I think those places are, good places as well to get historical information and information about um, these other um, 
groups that are also um, facing challenges in our nation and in our world. So, I find a lot of the content that, that EJI puts out provides context and color for like yes. today, you know? Yes. So knowing how to read all the information you have and how to put them together is the next piece, right? Once you have the sources. Um, and so right. I, the same ones you named, I, I do kind of follow. I like Twitter for the fact that it's like microblogging, you know, because you can just read the right. threads or get links to what you need to go and skim. So it's a great way to quickly learn and see and be able to sift um, for current. NPR the same. They seem to be, you know, a bit more neutral in their leanings. It's a yes. little bit left leaning, but you know, it's still not as it's not too extreme, right? Right. And then filling in the gaps with the historical context, I think helps put it all together. Yes, and that's and that's our goal is for, you know, we divide our nation's history of racial injustice into four eras. Um, the first being slavery, the second being racial terror lynching, the third being um, resistance to segregation, and the fourth being mass incarceration. And our goal is to get people to see that our history is not in a vacuum. Um, like slave, you know, chattel slavery was not just this phenomenon that happened and it has no link to what is happening today. Racial terror lynching is not unconnected to chattel slavery is not unconnected to resistance to segregation is not unconnected to mass incarceration. And our goal is, you know, to get people to see that through the, throughout these four eras, there's been this narrative that has gone unchallenged. And the narrative is that black people are inferior. Um, and throughout these four eras is what you see is white supremacist um, trying, you know, finding ways to uphold this narrative through chattel slavery, convict leasing, racial terror lynching, um, segregation and denying black people the right to vote and other, you know, civil rights, and then incarcerating them in mass um, for um, several decades, you know, all the way up to the present. Um, because you often hear people say that, oh, slavery was so long ago. And it really wasn't. Like the United States is a very young country. Yep. And, you know, slavery was a huge chunk of, the, you know, that, that, you know, a huge chunk of it. Um, and it really hasn't, we haven't challenged that narrative you know, on a mass scale, you know, that narrative is still very at much, very much at work in all of our systems, education, um, prison system, the military, um, public you know, health, public health, um, all to NPR this morning. And they were, they interviewed, they did a, um, they did this, piece about the Marine Corps, the Marines um, doing away with ban banning Confederate symbols and the Confederate flag. And it just, you know, like, it's just so weird to me. And I'm like, 
it is absolutely bizarre that the United States military branches allow people to display the flag and the symbols of a country that tried to fight it. <laughs> yeah, of like those that committed treason, basically. Right. And, you know, the U.S. <laughs> Army has bases that are named for Confederate generals. And I'm just like, yep. that is so... I mean, really sit and think about it. That is... I mean, you can't say... There's nothing other than racism to explain that. Correct. I mean, there's there's just no other way. That why we would erect any sort of building or statue for people that lost. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's just... It's like if we, it really, and people, you know, will always, of course, try to argue against this. But it's like if we, if, if the United States, like if, you know, like this one, the one of the men they were interviewing was talking about how when he first entered his barrack, his roommate had a Confederate flag hanging up. And he, you know, it's like, imagine you walked into your barrack and you met your roommate or bunkmate and he's got like an ISIS flag hanging up. Right. You know, like, we wouldn't accept that. Right. Or you're in Germany and you see, like, the West Germany Berlin Wall, like, paraphernalia. Right. Right. And we have accepted that and allowed that to just infiltrate everything in this country unchallenged. Until, you know, until today and people are like, oh, well, we're taking this down and we're going to change this and that because we realize, it's like, no, you've always known it's racist. You've always known that. Don't act like you never knew it was. You've always known that. I legitimately know people, kind, God-fearing people who legitimately don't see what's wrong with the flag. I promise you, they'd be like, I don't, they'll, they'll be like, I don't understand, Joe. Like, what's the problem? They lost. Um, I want to go back to when you became a public defender, like when you're going to law school and you're, you're starting your career. Um, how did you decide I want to serve the people? Because it feels like even from you going from the public defender to you then moving to um, the civil insurance claims and, and saying, no, this is not for me. It feels like you're guided by a bit of a moral compass. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but what draws you to want to fight for justice? So I, you know, I've often described my pathway as like an unseen hand <laughs> that, you know, no matter how hard I fight it or try to do something else, I always end back up in this world. Um, so when I was like, um, let's see, I'm trying to figure out how far back, let's just say since I was a baby. Um, okay. I didn't, you know, like I haven't always, I didn't always want to be a lawyer. I actually did not think I would be suited for lawyering until I actually became a lawyer. Um, wow. <laughs> I consider myself to be like a shy person, a person that's not really like, I don't, you know, I don't like to get up in front of people unless it's like super, um, rehearsed you know like I'm making a speech or something like that but having to like do stuff off the cuff and um those types of things is just not really in my spirit I felt 
And um, I just kind of saw myself doing a desk job or just like doing paperwork um, because that was what felt comfortable to me. Um, so like my, and I remember in high school, my high school principal told me I should become a lawyer. And I was like, nah, dog, like, <laughs> <laughs> not me. And why? You know, like, uh-huh. Yeah. Because I was like, I just cannot see myself like my, you know, the image I had in my head of a lawyer was like Johnny Cochran mm-hmm. and I was like, I can't see myself getting up and doing what Johnny Cochran does. Like, I can't see myself getting up in front of people and, you know, talking and things like that. And then I read a book somewhere where it, you know, I think it was a, it was either an article or maybe, I think it was an article about Johnny Cochran, but um, Johnny Cochran was really shy. And I was like, the Johnny Cochran? Like, if the glove don't fit, you must have quit Johnny Cochran? Right, I would have never guessed that. Johnny Cochran, who did like a days-long closing argument in front of the world on camera, Johnny Cochran? But yeah, he was um, he was shy. And that I found that very encouraged. I was like, well, if Johnny Cochran is shy, and he's the Johnny Cochran, yeah. then Maybe this is something I could do. But um, the criminal justice world has always been a part of my life. Um, my dad first went to prison when I was a kid. Actually, he was in jail when I was... Was he in jail? When I, I think he was in jail when I was born. <laughs> I've been there. Yeah, I've been there. He was in jail when I was born. I think he might have got out like a few days later. Um, but he's just out of jail and out of prison. And then... When I was 12, he got sent to prison for um, a distribution conviction for cocaine and he got life without parole. So he's actually still in prison. He's been there since I was 12. Um, So he's been there. He's done 22 years of a 30 year sentence Um, because at the time, 30 years was considered life in Georgia. So um, he got life without parole, which means that he could not come up for parole for 30 years. Um, for less than like a gram, it's a very small amount of cocaine, but he was sentenced under a, like a three strikes scheme. Yeah, um, which results in extremely excessive sentencing. A lot of the people in Alabama's prisons are there as a result of um, Alabama's similar scheme, which is um, called habitual felony offender. And it basically just ups the minimum sentence every time you get a felony conviction. Um, so there are a lot of people in Alabama prisons who are serving these extremely high sentences for victimless crimes, and it's like your third felony, but it's like something really small. Um, so it's just like it just results in these really harsh sentences, um, and that's essentially what happened to my dad, and. Um, so I've, you know, I've been in and out of prisons, like visiting in prisons and jails and things like that, courts, all of that, um, even before I got to law school. And then I got to law school and um, ended up getting an internship my first summer at a public defender's office in the, in the city where I went to law school, which was University of Tennessee, so Knoxville. And 
just loved it. Like I, you know, meeting attorneys who were kind of like quiet, but then to see them in court, like just turn into something, someone completely different. I was like, I can do that. If they can, you know, if shy people can do this work or people that don't really like to talk a whole lot can do this work, it is possible for me to do this work. Um, and then I got to my first job out of law school, which was the public defender's office in Tuscaloosa County. And um, my uh, mentor in the office was this really quiet woman. Um, we're still really good friends um, and I love her to death, but um, she told, she was an excellent trial lawyer and, but she was very quiet and but it was like at trial, she became something completely different. Um, and I remember her telling me that when she was younger, she had to go through speech therapy because she didn't talk. So she had to learn how to talk with a puppet. Really? Um, yeah, she was like, listen, I had to learn how to talk to speak up with the help of a puppet. So if you, if I can do it, you can do it. <laughs> So anytime I anytime I would um, uh, have a trial um, or have to argue something in court, I would think of her. I think of Johnny Cochran. I would also think um, of Beyonce. Beyonce is going to say that very she's different. Yeah, she's a perfect <laughs> example of that. Yes, and I was like, "Yo, Beyonce turns into something completely." different on stage and I've seen her perform and I'm just like it is so hard for me to think that this is the same yeah this is like the same person that people say you know she's very quiet and she's very shy and I'm like wow like it can be done <laughs> and you know it's funny too because it's always the people not always but people who are typically loud and like you know like flamboyant when it comes, like, showtime is when they get quiet. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it, it's the reverse. It's the yes. reverse. Yeah, I was thinking of Beyonce the whole time. Like, I know that's, like, inappropriate because she's an entertainer. I want to trivialize, but it's the perfect example that people would understand. No, I, I, I like, that's, um, that's one of the main people I usually draw upon is Beyonce. I'm, like, just, you know, that's, like, before a trial, that's who I would think of, like, Beyonce, Johnny Cochran <laughs> and yeah. <laughs> um, I totally get it. I totally understand. Yeah. Like I've got even just like if I've got like a big meeting or presentation, I gotta psych myself up for it at work. Yes. I have a Beyonce playlist. I was like, like I tell myself, I'm like this yes. mix of like Beyonce and Harvard. You know what I mean? Like yes. I'm, I'm reading, you know, my briefs. I'm reading what I gotta have, you know, to educate myself. And then I got her on there just to make sure that like, you know, I'm giving myself a pep talk basically yes yes okay. that I love that that you draw upon it I want to go back to what your high school principal actually saw in you though to say you should be a lawyer um I'm not sure because <laughs> <laughs> I say that like I was um I was valedictorian of my high school class um mm -hmm. but I was like that doesn't require me to like like I the only thing I had to do is like give a speech at graduation, you know what I mean? And, but you know, that was before I even gave the speech. This was, I think this was at an awards banquet where he told me that 
I should be a lawyer. I, I don't know what it was. Like I was known throughout school as being quiet and shy and, you know, not really one to um, really speak up a lot. So I'm not really sure what it was that he saw um, that said, you know what, she should, she should be a lawyer. <laughs> Quiet and shy, but you were a cheerleader. So you, we know you can, right. you can speak yeah. from your diaphragm. We know you can project. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay. That's so interesting. Um, so I, I have faith. I believe in God. And it seems that even yeah, that invisible hand, right, or that guiding uh, force knew it even well before you did, right? And other people probably saw it and affirmed it well before you could even articulate it. Yes. And, you know, I, I, I um, believe in God as well. And um, I know like there have been times where I've wanted to like quit and something happens and I'm like, why God, why do you, <laughs> why am I here? Why? Um, so yeah, there, um, I, there have definitely been times where I've like looked up at the ceiling and been like, I just don't understand why you won't. Just let me find a rich husband and go sit down somewhere. Um. <laughs> you know, that was my prayer for a while, too. I gave up on it. <laughs> but <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Like, in due time. So you wanted to sit somewhere and be a and be a nine-to-fiver or... Like, I feel like I have earned that at this point. But you're going to get it in the next life, though. You're going to get it just like... <laughs> you want to be a nine-to-fiver and he didn't call you to set captain's. <laughs> really <laughs> it's coming it's coming though it's coming it's like look just let me you know just let somebody just I'm not saying I'm gonna quit work 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 I mean I might take on a pro bono case here and there God I'm just saying he wants you out here literally being the bible <laughs> setting the table for you he wants you literally doing it okay that is a that's a beautiful that's a hard calling though. But then again, it's always people who don't want it is who he be calling to, to do stuff because it's stuff in right. my life. Like I don't even feel like mine is that you know you know life changing. But I'm like, why? I don't even want this. Like, right. And he put it on you who don't want it. Like we don't ask for it. So that's my yeah, comment for the day. No, I feel it. You know, like when people are all you know like. uh especially like law students and stuff. They're just like, oh, it's, you know, I'm so excited. I'm just like, oh, you don't even know what's coming for you. You don't even know. <laughs> and, you know, I kind of jokingly just tell them like, go do something else. Like, go, whatever your dream was outside of this, go do that. Like that. Man. Yeah. Okay. So given, you know, you explained how much of a toll being a public defender took on you, how heavy this work is. And we, we see it just observing. How do you care for yourself? How do you maintain like your hope and, and just regular self-care and sanity? Um, I see a therapist um, that has been extremely helpful in spotting patterns um, and spotting ups and downs in my mood. Um, I, you know, she and I have discovered that um, when I'm very stressed and need to step away, that I start talking about quitting my job. <laughs> so when you reach that point of burnout for a season. 
Yes. When I get to her and I'm like, listen, I, I need to go find another job. She's like, so what's been going on? <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, I'm like, you know what? You're right. Anytime stuff just gets like really stressful and bad at work, I just start talking yep. about quitting. Um, and sometimes in work, it's sometimes it's like just stuff in my life. And I'm like, I just want to, I just, I just need to go find another job. And she's like, what else is going on in your life? And I'm like, oh yeah. Okay. I have been, I have been stressed. Um, so I, I, I see a counselor. I, um, keep my work hours to the office hours. So, you know, we have our nine to five, you know, whatever I try to, um, I know if someone of my coworkers listen to this, like, you know, it's not nine to five, you know, it's like eight 30 to five 30. You don't want rolling in at nine, but uh, <laughs> you got to work when you work though. You have to, you know, I work, you know, I, I get there minutes? though. Right. I get there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, I try to keep my work in those hours. Um, the only time I work outside of those hours or on the weekend is when I have to do, like a presentation or something like that. Um, Cause we give presentations at about our work at the, um, at our center at our peace and justice center. Um, and sometimes those are on Saturdays. Sometimes they're on Sundays. Um, so if I'm put on that schedule, I'll go do that. But if I'm like writing a brief or working on something, you know, I'm not one of those folks who's like, it's a Saturday at one o'clock. And I'm like, hmm, maybe I should send some emails. Maybe I should do a little bit of writing on this brief. That's not me. Like, I'm just, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. My weekends are for rest and recuperation. What about thinking about some of your cases? Like, are you able to like leave those, you know, those cases or those, I don't want to call them narratives because they're people, but are you able to like kind of shut down your mind on the weekends? Not really. Um, that's one thing that's always been kind of hard for me to do. Um, and I've tried to be better about that um, because I realize that a lot of it comes from the things that I absorb outside of work. Mm-hmm. So Anything and everything to do with crime, true crime, fake crime, <laughs> fiction. Fake crime. <laughs> but I mean, like fiction, you know. Uh, yeah. I am really all into that. I always have been. Um, like, I noticed for a, a time, there was the only thing I was reading was like John Grisham books. And I was like, you have got to read something else. Like, you know, like you have, like, this is like work. Like you're reading about your work, but in a fictional. For fun. Right. And it's just like, yeah. it, it creeps into your mind. And even though you're, it's not real, you know, like, and you just have to watch out for that stuff. So I, um, I have over the years have started intentionally reading things that are not crime related. Um, and reading, like, I can't remember the last time I read, like, a. you know what, I'm lying. I definitely just finished it. <laughs> I was like, man, it's been a while. I was like, no, you definitely just finished up a true crime book about a serial killer. Um, <laughs> man, 
you know, the days move fast and slow right now. So right. I was, yeah, I I was like, wow, no, wait, you definitely did. Um, so I just try to like monitor what I'm absorbing outside of work. Cause if I don't, if I if I'm not intentional about what I'm listening and watching, I will read about crime, I will listen to podcasts about crime, I will just engage on in social on social media about things involving crime, um, just crime, all, you know, fictional just crime. Own it. Just own it. crime. <laughs> yeah. So it's, you know, I just have to be able to remind myself and to stop myself like, hey, yeah. you know, it, you need to find something else. So I've been, you know, breaking up my reading with just like romance, you know, romance novels and, um, just stuff that I wouldn't normally reach for, um, podcasts, you know, just like different, um, just staying away from the true crime podcast. Um, I start thinking about my cases and I start getting angry, you know, and I'm just like, I can't, I, you just can't do this. Um, so that's how I, I, I deal with that. Um, but it's, it's hard, you know, and especially with our, some of our cases tend to be can be high profile. And one of the cases I was on was like, kind of, it got really high profile. So it was like on the news and it was in the New York times and it was just all over the place. And it's just really hard to like, not, you know, like you just kind of have to step away from the internet for a few days to kind of let the news cycle flush out. Yeah. And like maybe do a digital Sabbath for a day each week or yes. something like that to try to disconnect. Yes. So I have a heavy question that I want to ask that um, wasn't in our notes, but have you lost a case? Yeah, like um, I know that sounds silly, but I didn't want to be like, no, oh, no, it's know? not silly. Um, it's strange because, uh, you know, as a public defender, it's like I lost all the time. <laughs> yeah. I figured that you would have, and that was probably contributing to burnout and other things. Yeah. Because <laughs> those are set up to fail, but okay. Yes, yes. It is having to, it is failure every day, all day. Um, and, you know, I was talking to, um, I talked to some, did a virtual presentation with some interns today, and you know, I described it as, you know, you have to, I described it as like being punched in the face, like every day. Um, and you have to redefine what it means to be victorious in order to see some sort of happy side to this work. Um, so for instance, in the case with like, um, um, you know, like if one of your clients dies in prison it's like especially like a death row client it's like oh this is really horrible but he didn't get executed you know right. like that's really morbid to, to a lot of i understand how that can sound morbid but it's like that is redefining victory in our world like our goal was to get this our goal was to get you off a of death row it would really have been nice if you could have been you know released at some point um especially if, you know, like, you know, if we've been pursuing like an innocence claim or something like that, having to look at something in a different light is something that you get a lot of practice in as a public defender and as a 
attorney who represents indigent people. Um, but yeah, I lost a lot as a public defender. Um, I actually lost my first trial. Um, it was a misdemeanor, but it was um, a, it was a misdemeanor that affected my client's life a lot more than it would have if the person was like rich. Um, yeah, it's really, the story with a lot of misdemeanor cases is like it's a misdemeanor to like a rich person, but a person who's poor just could just like mess up their whole life. Like just, you know, throw them all the way off. Um, I ended up winning. I ended up getting his conviction reversed on appeal. So I actually ended up winning in the very end. Um, But yeah, that first trial, I lost that. Um, I lost a trial in like my last year as a public defender, which was really, that was a really hard one because he was, he had no criminal record. Um, He was just a really quiet, shy dude who had never been in trouble. And he got accused of, you know, a sexual crime against a child. And I had never really dealt with that kind of case. Um, I didn't have any preconceived, you know, opinions about um, those types of cases either, you know, as, as a, as an attorney, but trying that case, like preparing for trial and then trying that case was just a very hard lesson in the assumptions that people have about you when you're just accused of something and selecting, you know, like selecting the jury and just, it was just really hard. And then we ended up losing and he ended up getting sentenced to 25 years in prison, um, which he will have to do, I think, every day of that 25 years, which was just devastating for us because we, you know, we had worked so hard and, you know, developed this relationship with him and believed that he was innocent and, he gets found guilty and sentenced to 25 years. And, you know, it just was really like a really huge loss. Um, I think that that was my like last year. It wasn't my last trial, but that was like, I remember thinking after that trial, like I cannot, I've got to get out of this work. Like I can't, I can't do this anymore. Um, but yeah, as at EJI, we have, I've so far been on cases that have worked out fairly, fairly well. Um, but I know that I have colleagues and especially the senior attorneys who have experienced significant losses over um, the time that they've been at the organization um, just because they've, you know, Alabama has a huge death row and, you know, during election years, they start lining people up for execution dates and it's really hard to defend all those cases. And there's some terrible lawyering on, you know, at the trial level a lot of times, and it's just hard to overcome that in the appellate stage. So, Wait they line up these execution dates in election years. Yes, execution executions are usually higher in election years. The execu- and, yeah. 
That's across the country. Why is that? Why is that? Can you um, tell people want to appear tough on crime. There's still this, you know, idea that executing people is what, I mean, and that's happening now with the federal um, death row. Um, they just announced maybe last week that they're going to resume the um, federal death row executions, um, which is outrageous because federal death row has been largely kind of inactive. Yeah. Uh, been um, an execution on federal death row since 2003. Um, and since 1988, they've only executed three people. Um, but it's an election year. So they are um, trying to appear tough on crime, um, the Republican Party. Um, and it's not just, I don't think it's just one party that does it. Um, so I'm not good, but, you know, especially a lot of the states that have, that still have death row are red states, um, are um, states that are led by Republican legislatures and things like that. So in recent years, it's, you know, um, been the Republican Party, but I think you not can- the pro-lifers. Say, not the pro-lifers, yeah. Um, but yeah, it, our, you know, I, and I think we have a report that shows that, that death row, that executions um, get higher around election time. And that again is just people trying to appear tough. Um, and like making people disposable for that. Like I'm I'm trying yes. to <laughs> I like we are keeping you people think that it, it it's a show of keeping them safe, you know? And it's just like it's not. It's it's in states that have the death penalty, the crime rate is actually higher. Um because if your government is saying we don't care about your life, it sends a message, you know, that life is just disposable. You know, the death penalty is not a deterrent. It's not a, I mean, there's just all sorts of things wrong with it. It's barbaric. It's cruel. Um, it's outdated you know like it's just you know we're one of the few countries that still does it and the other countries that do it are countries that we commonly criticize for human rights violations and things like that and it's just like we can't really say much about other countries because we still execute people <laughs> the um, irony right right um but yeah it's a very it's a very sick phenomenon that happens around election time where governors and political leaders think, you know, one of the things that we're going to be able to say during the election year is that we were tough on crime and that we try to protect people from these murderers and killers. And it's just really sad. They're already in prison, not on the street right. anyway. Right. And a lot of understand them, the logic. I'm sorry. I don't get right. it. Oh, no, I, mean, no, I, I get it, but I don't get it. Like it's dumb. It's it's crazy. And a lot of the people that are 
um, a lot of the people that are set for execution are people who have been in prison for like 30 years. Like they're usually the people who have been the longest serving on death row um, because they've exhausted all of their appeals because those appeals take years to get through. Um, so you've, you've had this person in prison for decades and now you pick this time to execute them. It's just, it's just horrible. I almost wish I didn't learn that. I mean, I'm 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 glad <laughs> to have learned it, but I almost wish I didn't because it, like, my soul feels really heavy right now. I don't know how to describe that because it's yeah, just, it's yeah, yeah. Like we're yeah, I, I'm. I don't really have the words, and God bless you for being able to face that every day. It's um, yeah, it's it's heavy to know because once you see like just going over the data, you're like, my God, it's true. And you just have to like, it's good to know, of course, because you realize like, as if you're someone who is against the death penalty or is leaning that way, you realize like, wow, these people are using the, the, the death of these people, the murder of these people as political gain. And it's just really, it's just terrible. It's quite sickening. Yeah. That's, that's, I would have thought there'd be more, you know, like clemency being granted on your, on your way out, right? You're out of here. It doesn't matter. But to actually use people as like pawns in your scheme. And they've you've already snatched their life from them, and now like it, I don't have the words for that. I just I don't know what to say. Like I'm I'm rendered speechless right now, which is hard, but I don't have words. <laughs> and that I could go on and on. I'm not gonna go on and on on that though. <laughs> um, I, I really I have some other parallels that I could go into that in my mind that I'm thinking of. Um, particularly, well, I might as well because I'm thinking about it. So I like back to faith. Yeah, like, yeah. These same people, these same people <laughs> that cry about Jesus being executed, and you know, Easter is a big deal, and it's like you do the same thing to people around you, and you don't even get it. They don't get it at all. They don't see the correlation. And it's like, you know, you tell people, because people want to, you know, I think the, the, the issue, of course, arises because people don't, I don't think people see the humanity of Jesus. Like, I think they can tell you that, oh, he was, you know. He was here and he did stuff. He was here and he did stuff. But I think if people actually recognize that Jesus of, Na you know, like I, Jesus of Nazareth was like an actual human being that walked the earth. Um, even if you believe that he was God in human form, he was still a human being participating in, you know, other human beings lives. Um, you know, even though he, you know, even if you believe that he had this, deity-like quality, but 
you know, it's like he was executed and he was executed for breaking the law. I mean, it wasn't murder, but it was still breaking the law. And um, yeah, they just don't see the, the correlation in doing something like that to a person. I was like, you know, and you know, I was like, people, the people that executed Jesus thought that that was a suitable Righteous thing to do. Yeah. 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 I was like, they thought it was okay. Mm-hmm. They thought it was so okay. They were, they were following their laws. Right. Right. And they hated him. But that's another. That's another. Topic. <laughs> <laughs> There's like they all kinds of ways. Yeah. But you know, I also think about like the people who argue about like people when they're killed by the police. Well, if they just followed the law, they wouldn't. Yeah, you know, Jesus had just followed the law. He wouldn't have been executed. I mean, just think about saying that to Jesus. You know, think about saying that to Jesus. You know what I mean? I'm not. You know, like you could say that right now. Same thing. Yeah, you can. Yeah. You could say that about you know if you just follow the law. Well, Jesus, you shouldn't have did that miracle on the Sabbath to see what you get. Right. Like, that makes no sense. But it, I see a lot of the parallels, and that's why I don't understand how people don't see those parallels. Especially would, when you told that Bible so hard next to that flag. Right. How do you not see? Right. And what's funny, so in my first episode, I actually sat down with a white evangelical pastor to talk about this. Oh, wow. I did. It was, I had to because, you know, I, 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 I've been going to multicultural, multiracial churches, and it's been very, when these types of events occur, it's very, you know, there's a line down the middle, like a line in the sand of who is where, and, and the opinions are vocal, and people get hurt, you know, because you're thinking, I worship alongside this person, and then to turn around and see their Facebook post when they think, well, if you follow the law, you wouldn't die. But does the punishment really fit the crime in these cases? Like, aren't you supposed to, like you in church cry for mercy because you got jealous of your friend who got a better car, but you don't think these other people get mercy? Like, right. How does that work? Is it only enough grace for you and your people? Doesn't make sense to me. So that's <laughs> that's that's what I'm always thinking. Like, I don't understand how you think Jesus is only for you or centered on you. But I guess that's what the white blessing is. Like that, Pastor Louis Giglio was talking about. <laughs> and it's the white blessing that we don't get. Um, I don't understand it, but it's just like, come on, like, like decenter you for a second and think about the humanity in other people or the God in other, whatever it is that you have to see to see them as also valuable. Right. So I have one last question for you. My last call. I also realized I never asked you what you were drinking. We just started talking. <laughs> <laughs> I am supposed to say, what are you drinking today? If you I still have drinking, anything left. I'm drinking low sugar Gatorade. Uh, <laughs> what in the world is that? The, the zero? The Gatorade zero? No, it's the G2. So uh, okay. I guess that's, you know, G half or, what you know, G2. But okay. um, I just don't drink enough fluids. Like, it's just a weird thing. So that is why I'm drinking Gatorade. Hydrate yourselves, people. <laughs> Please be hydrated. Yes. Don't be thirsty out here. Be, be hydrated. No, 
in any sense. In any sense. <laughs> exactly. I am drinking a rose hip and hibiscus tea that I mix with some ginger tea also. Ooh. That sounds good. These are packaged. Yeah, these are packaged, child. Yes. But they're good. I got them from Tuesday morning. That's like my favorite store. It makes me an old lady now, I think. But I love that store. I might have to go fix. I have some. Do I have ginger tea? I think I have some ginger tea. With some hibiscus. Oh, okay, I'm going to go. I, you know, see, I've never really thought about mixing teas. Like mixing. Yeah, I just. I drink a lot of stuff, so I'd be sitting here like, what can I make next? And I That's awesome. And see what happens. <laughs> yes, I make some. That's awesome. Okay, I'm about to do that. I've got ideas now. I've got ideas. Yes. <laughs> Follow my page till you get some more ideas. <laughs> yes. Um, so you've given us some education, some history, some inconvenient, uncomfortable truth. And you said earlier, kind of at the start of this interview, like, we don't have to be doing the work to feel the heaviness of it. However, if we want to somehow support or somehow get involved, how can we as just citizens or people with a moral compass get involved? So I would start out with um, visiting our website. Um, we have a lot of resources on our website. Um, we um, don't have really a need at the moment for volunteers, but um, you can donate to different organizations. You can donate to us. Um, there are other organizations that need your help. Um, Innocence Project, um, I think Southern Center for Human Rights. Um, there are organizations that do call for volunteers for various things. So reach out to organizations around where you live um, to see if they need any help. Um, there are, you know, like not everybody's comfortable with, um, we get a lot of contact. I will we get a lot of contact from people who have, um, develop relationships with people who are incarcerated. Um, a lot of people, especially on death row, they've been in prison for so long. They, they don't have any family. They don't have any, they don't have, no one's left. Um, so if you're someone that likes to write to people, that likes to talk to strangers, <laughs> um, you may could seek out to see if there's someone who would like a writing buddy who's incarcerated. Um, what else? Vote. I always encourage people to vote. Um, that is a individual power that you have um, that can make change. It may not seem like it, but if it didn't make change, they wouldn't be trying to take it from you. Um, when you get called for jury duty, go serve. I know people try to get out of jury duty, but we need, especially black folks, we need more black people on juries. Um, and a lot of times that's not up to you, you know, a prosecutor or even a defense attorney may not select you for their jury, but you can't not be selected if you're not there, if you don't show up. 
Um, right. Trying to think what else. There's so many ways. Um, if you're, you know, we have, we work with different people who are not lawyers, but they're, they're like criminal justice reform minded. Um, so like, for example, with our museum, we worked with artists and companies that use their skills in the criminal justice reform and racial injustice area. Graphic designers that design our websites and our programs and our covers for our reports. Like there's all sorts of ways you can be involved. Even if you're not a lawyer, there's all sorts of ways to fight. Even if you're, if you, you're not even in court. Um, we have private sector attorneys that take on pro bono cases. So we are always in need of that. Um, so if you're an attorney who's interested in taking on a, a death row case, um, we do have a need for that. Um, so that's one way if you are a lawyer who's not in the indigent services sector, if you're looking for pro bono or looking to, to help, we have a lot of people on death row who need representation because you're not entitled to an attorney in Alabama once you get past the direct appeal stage. Um, and we can't represent everyone on Alabama's death row. Um, we don't have the, the power, the resources to do that. Um, but we are always, we always try to get people on Alabama's death row representation from somewhere. Um, but yeah, I would check out any sort of organization that's near you that deals with racial injustice and deals with um, working with people in prison and reach out and see how you can help and donate your time and donate your money if you have it. Um, send some encouragement. You know, a lot of times it's, you know, it can seem like a, a thankless job, you know, like, um, especially as a public defender, man, you just get railed on all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, people don't think you're a lawyer. Oh people, gosh. you know, have all these misconceptions about you. So uh, hug a public defender, thank a public defender. Um, well, don't hug them in COVID. But... Yeah, don't hug them in COVID. Um, air hug, you know, maybe color purple clap. Um, <laughs> <laughs> send some joy send some good energy yes yeah, send some good energy and some vibes and stuff um, but yeah there's you know there are avenues and ways to to get involved you know you don't have to if you don't feel like you can go out and you know protest and march that's okay you know there, there are you know ways to help um without being on the front lines and, and that's okay as well. So that's good. I think you gave us a nice comprehensive, you know, kind of offering of ways that we can use our gifts and our talents and time to be able to serve um, without 
becoming a lawyer and thinking that we that's the only way that we can help affect change or make a difference. Um, but thank you so much for being here, having this conversation with me today, Ashley. It's been amazing. I've, I've really enjoyed listening and hearing and, and listening to you share your experience and wisdom and knowledge with us. So thank you again so much for this time. I know you're busy um, and we greatly appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. And if people want to get in contact with you, how can they connect? My um, my email address is A-A-D-A-M-S at EJI.org. Um, so that's two A's, D as in dog, A-M um, as in mad, uh, and S at EJI.org. So. And the website for us to find... Uh, the resources and things that you that you've talked about on EJI's site is what? www.eji.org. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you.